0: Emily is a board-certified behavior analyst from California who focuses on specializing in sleep-related behavior. With more than 20 years in the field, Emily offers families and clinicians a broader Long view perspective of sleep, resulting in more sustainable results over time. In today's conversation, we discuss the correlation between autism and poor sleep, common sleep-related behaviors, myths about sleep struggles, how a sleep-deprived child can affect the family as a whole, how sleep contributes to learning and memory consolidation, why we shouldn't set alarm clocks to wake up, the importance of a consistent bedtime routine, tips to help balance screen dependency, daytime napping, and recovering from sleep debt. In this episode, discover what's possible when wellness starts at bedtime. To learn more about Emily and her work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community at community.globalautismproject.org. And now, I present you, Emily Varen. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so
1: excited to be talking about sleep with everyone today. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with a brief introduction. Sure. Um, My name is Emily Varen. I have a small company called Ready, Set, Sleep. I do autism education on sleep. Um, I offer CEUs. I've been in the field for about 22 years, and I've focused my practice on sleep for about the last 12 years, so specifically in the autism community, but also treating the neurotypical population, new moms, toddlers, uh, teenagers, school-age kids, kind of the whole gamut, all the way up through adults.
0: Yeah, because everyone can relate, just as we were saying before we hit record.
1: (laughs) because
0: because everybody needs more sleep. Yeah. Nobody doesn't need more
1: <laughs> sleep. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> what made you become interested in focusing on
1: sleep? It really started with my own desperation with my kids when they were born. So my kids are 12 and 14. And when my daughter was born you know, 14 years ago, I sleep was the one thing. You know, and when we have children, every every parent goes through their own journey with what their main concerns are. Sometimes it's, feeding. Are they getting enough food? Sometimes it's, you know, ins and outs with, you know, diapers and sometimes it's, uh, you know, development and things like that. My thing was sleep. I just was so worried about my own sleep and that they wouldn't sleep. So before my daughter was born, I kind of read all the parenting sleep books. And when I finally decided to I'm going to put it in big air quotes, sleep train, because I know that's not everyone's on the sleep train with me. But when I decided to do that, when I was selecting methods, I was just noticing that there really weren't, there weren't a whole lot of methods. It was all pretty much extinction. And it was all ABA. I wasn't to BCBA yet at the time. I was board certified just a couple of years later, but at the time, I had been already practicing in the field for so many years, and I just kind of looked at all the books, <laughs> like, is this, is this all we've got?
0: Yeah. <laughs> this is it? Okay. Just to clarify for our listeners, Emily, for people who aren't familiar, could you explain what that looks like with extinction?
1: So basically, there's different levels of extinction, which we know as BCBAs, that's not really a thing. It's either extinction or it's not extinction, but it's kind of this, what what has been known to just be sort of a graduated extinction. So basically, you put the baby to sleep in their sleep space, in their crib, let's say, and you leave the room for a designated amount of time, and then you check in just giving them verbal comforts, things like that. So there's a lot of different variations on that. Some methods say like you can come in and touch. Some methods say you shouldn't touch at all. Some methods say go and pick up. Some methods say, no, you should never pick up. So there really wasn't like kind of one thing. And it's very unclear to families what the best methods are, what fits their family style, you know, there's this sort of, uh, I guess, silent fight out on the internet about like crying or no crying and, you know, whether damage or no damage and all of this. I mean, we know that crying itself doesn't cause damage, but, you know, there's, there's just philosophies. There's philosophies, but there wasn't a whole lot of just hard science. It was just a lot of philosophies. So I picked the the most ABA one that I could, the one that had me taking data uh, or data, <laughs> <laughs> one that had me tracking things for a couple of nights, looking at wake windows, looking at do I have the right timing down for my baby? But a lot of it was just kind of hit or miss. And uh, so that's where I kind of became fascinated with sleep as a function of, of ABA, you know, a, as you know a behavior as falling asleep looking at that that mechanism of falling asleep and everything leading up to falling asleep as behavior and that's where i kind of just i just lit up and then shortly after that i started a new job we moved we relocated and i started with a with an aba company who sort of identified in me that i was good at the sleep thing. And it was working for the six and seven and 12-year-olds that we were treating. And so I just kept modifying from there. And then I saw Gregory Hanley speak one day. Um, This was when he was the sleep guy and not the practical functional assessment guy. And he just kind of opened up the whole thing for me. So it was... uh, It was fascinating. And then once I heard him speak and I saw that there were other methods, that this is not just a one stop shop, that there are so many different ways we can teach sleep skills. It just really opened my eyes. So,
0: Mm -hmm. Did you undergo like specific training in the science of sleep? Is that a thing like sleep science?
1: Yes. um, No, I did not go. There really isn't a specific sleep training. So if you look at like sleep coaches and things like that, if you like Google sleep coach, if you're having trouble with sleep with your baby, there's all different philosophies, but there really is not a science for behavioral sleep. A lot of people study it and there is a lot of research on it, you know, given, you know, Gregory Hanley and then also um, Matthew Walker also does a whole, a lot about behavioral sleep as well, um, and the science of sleep. But no, there's not a training program that really breaks down how sleep works in the brain and how those mechanisms play out throughout the night and what we can do leading up to sleep. So for me, it was sort of pulling together from all the different reading and science and you know research and and just listening to other people who were Non-ABA folks (laughs) and looking at the scientists and then also just um, looking inward at the own, you know, ABA methods and saying, okay, well, there's there is a happy medium here. There is a way to walk into sleep problems, not as just a one method show. Right. Got it. So
0: what's the correlation between autistic children and poor sleep?
1: So the current research really shows that there's no causation. So, and we know this because not every child with autism has sleep trouble, right? So a diagnosis of autism doesn't necessarily mean your child is going to have poor sleep. And if a child has poor sleep, it's not necessarily because of their autism, right? But there are certain autistic characteristics that can contribute to to poor sleep, such as screen dependence nowadays, right? So within the last 12 years, we've really seen a lot of screen dependence in our community because it is, first of all, a great learning tool, right? It's a great educational tool, but then it's also a good passive activity tool. And we saw a huge increase in this also during COVID for the neurotypical population as well. So I think just for kids in general who don't have great self-regulation, so, you know, your average six-year-old, whether they have a diagnosis of anything or not, is going to have trouble terminating their screen time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it is just in the brain as well, because we're getting this dopamine rush. We're getting positive reinforcement from the chemicals in our brain, and so it makes that hard. So screen time is, is one thing. So screen dependency. And then also sensory issues. But, you know, more of the... Not necessarily the sensory dysregulation as we sometimes see it, but the need for sensory input to feel regulated. So jumping, crashing, bouncing too close to bedtime is a sleep stealer. So for the children who are a little more sensory dysregulated, who do crave the consistent jumping and crashing, in almost 100% of opportunities, we're going to see that they have problems with sleep as well. I see. So there is, I, I don't know if I could call it a comorbidity there, but it is something that feeds into poor sleep, right? This sensory dysregulation. But it's how we are offering sensory regulation that's actually the problem. It's not the sensory dysregulation in itself that's causing the poor sleep. It's the caregiver saying, oh, I know that jumping helps regulate him, so I'm going to have him jump close to sleep so that he can be regulated, except that that's alerting sensory experiences. That's vis- alerting vestibular input, and that's going to delay sleep onset. Mm. So there are these things that are sort of these characteristics that are are inherent to children with autism that just exacerbate what any human would have trouble with when it comes to falling asleep. So that's why we call it like a correlation, right? Not as much a causation. Yes, exactly.
0: When we think about the different types of sleep struggles, like what are these common sleep-related behaviors? So there's like, you know, trouble getting to
1: sleep, right? What else? Yep, absolutely. So difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, And within the difficulty staying asleep, there's some like little subsections. So there's just persistent night awakenings where the child is waking up multiple times a night. And then there's also where the child wakes or the adult (laughs) or the person wakes and is up for a, a longer segment of time before they're able to fall back asleep. And then we also get issues with early morning wake-ups or daytime naps when it shouldn't really be happening based on age. So we'll get, like, the 10-year-old taking a nap in the middle of the day. So that also falls into that category, which then snowballs into all the other things. Mm -hmm. But really, if we're just, like, isolating it, falling asleep, difficulty falling asleep, late bedtimes, and difficulty staying asleep are really the two major ones. Okay. What about trouble
0: waking up? Is that something?
1: So trouble waking up usually is a function or a byproduct, I should say, more accurately, of not falling asleep in a timely fashion. So what happens if we can't fall asleep at night, then there's no way we're going to wake up on time for school or on time for therapy or, you know, we're going to tend to sleep the day away to sleep off that sleep debt that we accrued not being able to fall asleep at night. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So, but it's a good question because sometimes families come to us and say, I can't get my teenager out of bed in the morning, or I can't get my 10-year-old out of bed in the morning. And they come to us with that problem. And I think where the deficit is for the autism treatment community, so the ABA community, is really asking the questions about, well, what happened at night? So we'll walk in and we'll try to fix the problem of waking. So we'll say, okay, well, let's wake you know 30 minutes earlier so they'll have time to wake up. Or we'll say like, okay, well, let's open up the curtains and let's put on their favorite music so they'll be encouraged to get out of bed. And we, we try to embed reinforcement into, let's say, the problem that we are brought, right? So someone brings to us a problem. They say, okay, the problem is I can't get my kid out of bed in the morning. And as the autism treatment community, we don't know the other questions to ask. We don't know to ask about, well, what time did they fall asleep at night? How was their quality of sleep? Why are they having trouble getting out of sleep in the morning? Is it just a behavior that we're going to analyze in isolation and say, okay, or, you know, and and we're going to label it task avoidance? Well, he hates school, so he hates getting out of bed. She's having trouble socially at school, so therefore she doesn't want to get out of bed. And so now we're going down the road of social stories and we're going down the road of, you know, fun music and, you know, trying, you know, some of these other strategies to encourage the kids out of bed, let's say, when really the problem is, is that they're in a huge sleep deficit. They've accrued a huge sleep debt overnight. And the fact that they, you know, didn't fall asleep until 2 a.m. and you're asking them to be out of bed at 7.30, that's not going to go well for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to go well for any of us, right? So we really have to look at at the whole picture and look at our our plans and our treatments when we're looking at sleep and make sure that we're asking all the questions. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I offer the CEUs. That's why I offer in-house training. That's why I offer these where I love these podcasts where I can just kind of bring up these question marks of ethics are we really doing the right thing by just offering some incentive in the morning to get out of bed, let's say.
0: Right. And it's so important when you think about sleep as a whole, could you talk about how a sleep deprived child could impact the family
1: and their their wellness as a whole? Oh, everything. Matthew Walker says it best. I, I can't quote him exactly, but he says something to the effect of there are no systems in the body that aren't benefited by a good night's sleep. So every system from digestion to memory consolidation to heart and uh, cardiac and respiratory health, blood pressure, glucose, di- diabetes sort of um, factors, hormonal balances, depression, anxiety, All of those things could potentially lead back to sleep. So I'm interesting, just a short case study right now, I'm treating a 16 year old who's in high school, straight A student, parent comes to me, anxiety, depression, difficulty balancing the diet, you know, really, you know, having a a trash bag diet, let's say. And the, the last stop on their train ride was sleep. And now that we're getting his sleep on track, that feeling of anxiety and depression is lifting. He's reporting feeling better. He's reporting to be able to focus better in school. He's reporting, well, mom is saying he's eating more balanced and at more healthy intervals throughout the day. So not just like binging the Doritos, right? Actually sitting down and having a sandwich. So what we want to try and do is really look at sleep first in the wellness train, because if the child's not getting enough sleep and they're acting out and we're seeing flat lines on behavior graphs or an increase in behavior graphs, if we're seeing flat lines in skill acquisitions, these are things that we can see from a data standpoint, right? We can see whether a child has flatlined. We can see whether their maladaptive behaviors are going up and their skill acquisition is going down, let's say. So we can see these things on a graph and try and change our methods of teaching, sure. But are we asking about sleep? Right. Are they getting enough sleep? So memory consolidation, learning, we, there's robust research, a lot of research on the sleep-learning connection. Whether that's developmental delays and being able to catch up, speech deficits, you know, self-care, whatever it is, the skill that we're teaching, it's directly impacted. The ability to proceed through, let's say, a plan and actually have success is contingent on whether they're sleeping at night. Because our brain, while we're asleep, actually takes all of those skills and rehearses them in our brain during our dream phases. Oh, okay. So if we're truncating our sleep and we're waking up to an alarm, we're not going to have as great of output the next day on, let's say, learned skills. So this is important for people who are studying for their BCBA exams, let's say what happens with adults is that, and and this is adults on the autism spectrum or, you know, just working adults, is when we truncate, when we slice off that morning sleep by waking up to an alarm, you know, let's say we've been up all night on our iPads or gaming or whatever it is we're doing, enjoying ourselves till late at night till we finally fall asleep, let's say, and then we have to wake up to an alarm in the morning, we are actually robbing ourselves of the opportunity for those memories, for those skills, for all that daytime stuff that we experienced yesterday to actually consolidate and be sorted through. I apologize for the dog in the background, Uh, be sorted through and actually be carried through the next day. So we really need those last hours of sleep. And unfortunately, what happens is we end up slicing those off. Those are the hours we are less likely to achieve. And those hours are the most important for emotional regulation and memory consolidation. And so routinely what us humans do is we actually cut off the most important part of sleep. Oh, fascinating. And we're not even going to call it the most important part because it's all important because we need our deep sleep too for, for our physical health. But when it comes to learning and emotional health, Those light phases of sleep and especially those those latter hours of sleep are so important for cognition.
0: So would you say it's better to wake up naturally and not set an alarm? A hundred percent. A hundred
1: percent. If you are waking up to an alarm, it means that you have cut off important parts of your sleep. There's no way Mm -hmm. around that, right? If you're not waking up naturally, you're not getting the full amount of sleep that you need. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, look, and that really comes back to a bedtime problem, doesn't it? Are we going to bed early enough? Are we having efficient sleep onset? Are we giving ourselves a bedtime routine? Adults laugh at me when I ask them if they have a bedtime routine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, what do you mean? Are you going to read me a book? Are you going to sing me a song? <laughs> right? No, no, no. But it just needs to be something that comes in a certain order. And we all have it. Uh, you know, Well, maybe not all of us, but <laughs> we all need it um, to come into the same, in the same order, relatively the same order. And it has to be calming to the brain. So this is where things like exercise are incompatible with sleep, let's say. And late at night. We need exercise during the day, during waking hours. But if we're jumping, crashing, moving around, increasing that core temperature close to bedtime, we are going to have trouble falling asleep. The body wants to be on the cooler side, right? And that goes back to the jumping that I was talking about with those sensory needs, right? If you're jumping, crashing, running, it's such a misnomer to get the wiggles out before bed. And bajillions Mm. of parents do that. (laughs) all over the world we're trying to get wiggles out before bed right we're trying to you know get that excess energy out so the child will sleep but what we're doing is we're increasing the core temperature and we're actually delaying sleep onset whoops
0: oh so what would you recommend to those oopsie parents who have kids who need that sensory regulation
1: so deep pressure calming sensory switch it up do uh Deep pressure, rocking, swinging, swaying, back and forth visi- vestibular motion. You can do pillow smushes, things like that. The problem with up and down vestibular motion, or that crashing, where we're actually adding sensory experiences to our joints, which are also have you know sensory receptors on them, right? We're just alerting the sensory system. We're just waking us up at a, waking our brains up at a time when we <laughs> should be falling asleep. So just opt for different sensory experiences, right, to, to calm the brain. We're trying to calm for bed. So alerting the body in order to sleep is just, you know, it's counterproductive. So, I mean, you know, how we fall asleep and the things leading up that are going to precipitate sleep, sometimes they actually end up stealing our sleep, like blue light, like screen dependence. We often hear people say, oh, I can't fall asleep, so I'll just you know scroll pinterest or scroll instagram or you know i just i can't fall asleep so i turn on my screen but then we run into like the evil blue light problem which stops your melatonin production we don't produce melatonin when we're looking at a at a screen and then it gives us the perception that we're not tired and so then it delays our sleep onset or we resort to melatonin so we take mm-hmm. we take a melatonin because we're blocking our melatonin. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this plays out more significantly in the autism population because there is some research that some people, some humans on the autism spectrum are wonky producers, maybe low producers, maybe inconsistent producers. There's some information now. There's some research saying that it's, a little bit more consistent on the autism spectrum where we see some of these inconsistencies with melatonin production. However, what I'll say is that that same population of people, what they're not testing for necessarily is the impact of screen time on that melatonin production. Oh. Because if they're on a screen, they're not producing melatonin, which will give the illusion to the caregiver that they're not able to fall asleep, which will then lead them to a doctor who will say, let's try some melatonin. But the medical team isn't asking about screen consumption. Mm-hmm. So then we're in this cycle of giving, some, you know, synthetic or supplementary melatonin. Melatonin is a is a hormone. Uh-huh.
0: And it's produced when there's low light, right? Is that correct? Right. As the
1: sun sets. uh, uh, So so the source, the main source of blue light for humans is the sun until the invention of the LED screen. Then once LED screens started becoming a thing, which is all of our smart screens, you can't get away from it. It, Whether you're on a tablet of any, it doesn't matter if you're on an Android or an Apple, it doesn't matter. It's all LED technology. And so the screen itself, the technology itself of LED screens, so smart screens, produces blue light. And blue light, being the same wavelength, let's say, as the rays of the sun, tricks the brain into thinking it's still daytime. And so the brain won't produce melatonin unless it senses that it's nighttime. So we run into this pickle where we are viewing our screens, you know, into the night, Our melatonin isn't producing. We're not feeling sleepy because melatonin isn't triggering all those other sleepy hormones. And then what happens is we do eventually crash because melatonin isn't the only player in sleep onset. It's one of the players. It goes, hey, sleep hormones, it's time for you guys to do your job. But without that signal, the other sleep hormones are just kind of like waiting. They're waiting for melatonin to like fire off the gun, basically. If melatonin doesn't fire off the gun, the brain will eventually go into fight or flight and just shut down. It'll just shut down. So you will eventually, what I call, crash. You will eventually fall asleep, but it's going to be so significantly past your natural fall asleep time. So screen time really does play such a significant role in sleep onset. And then that flows into the autism population where we're already getting these messages that children with autism are poor producers of melatonin or are already going to be poor sleepers. And it already is such a common trope to just offer melatonin or go to melatonin as a means of helping sleep when so often now it's really a screen time issue. It's not necessarily a melatonin issue.
0: What are some tips to help balance that screen dependency?
1: So then it becomes a question of of behavior intervention and how dependent we are on the screen. Is it a screen addiction, right? Do we have a kiddo who is just addicted to that dopamine rush, is basically self-soothing through screen time, right? So we have to make that determination possibly with the family. Or is it just kind of a screen reliance thing where the parents have said, you know, they have such a limited repertoire of leisure activities that really the only thing they're able to engage in is screen time. So this could be true as well. So it's important for the clinical team to really work with the families at identifying other activities because I know for a fact, well, I'm going to say fact, it's a loose fact, (laughs) It's an, ob- an observatory fact, let's say, an observational fact. That screen time isn't the only things our kids can do. It might be the most preferred thing. It might be the thing that really seems to work the best. But in the absence of screen time, I guarantee you we can find other leisure activities that our kids can engage in. and I'll tell you why. Because screen time wasn't a thing until about 12 years ago. <laughs> until just about 12 years ago. What were our kids on the spectrum doing? What were they doing? Okay, well, maybe they were watching TV. TV is a better alternative than screen time. It falls into the same category. I sound like I'm talking out of the same two sides of my mouth. But when we think about our smart screens, we're holding them right up to our face. We're in such close contact to that concentrated blue light, we can't avoid it. Our eyeballs don't register any other ambient light when we're just looking at our screen. Now, if you're sitting on a couch and the TV is mounted on the wall across from the couch and your child's sitting on the couch and all the lights are on in the room, that's going to be a better option than a tablet or a phone. So maybe we can transition from our tablet to our TV. And then maybe since TV is maybe less less reinforcing, let's say, than something else, right? So like, like we can go in a hierarchy. So we can go from like tablet time to TV time to maybe something else. Maybe they enjoy some sensory input. Maybe we can go to like a sensory experience. Maybe we can go to puzzles, you know, put-ins, building, drawing, constructing, you know, any of those other tasks that maybe our kids prefer or maybe not prefer, but enjoy, but maybe aren't like as high on the hierarchy as let's say tablet time, let's say. So we can scaffold these things. So we just need to identify other things that are calming to the brain. So they're more static. So not as, you know, we're not going to be jumping up and down or we're not going to be watching our screen time. It can be anything from puzzles, put-ins, drawing, you know, even just quiet play. Sure, reading. But look, my kids are 12 and 14. They don't like reading.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, reading
1: is like, okay, that's nice to think about. Let's read books before bed. But not every kid, not every adult, not every teenager is going to sit for books. So it's about identifying other things that can come in that hour before sleep is expected. That could be a bath or a shower. I love a long bath or a shower. Most of the clients I work with who are on the autism spectrum really enjoy the sensory input of water, very much enjoy bath time, very much enjoy shower time. Stay in the bath or the shower a half hour. Okay, maybe that's not the environmentally friendly (laughs) solution, Mm -hmm. but if you can eat up a good half hour in either the shower or the bath before sleep is expected, that's going to be compatible with sleep. And it's in com- and it's incompatible with screen time. And it's incompatible with jumping and crashing. So it really ticks a lot of boxes. So we maybe can go from, let's say, dinner to a long bath or shower to some quiet play in pajamas into bed. We just have to get a little creative with how we structure that hour hour and a half before sleep is expected.
0: Okay. Well, just a couple of follow-up questions about the blue light. What do you think about the blue light glasses? Does that actually really help? And also like changing the settings on the screens so that they're, you know, in night mode and things like that?
1: Yes. So let's start with the latter. Let's start with the night shift on the screens. So you have to think about the screen as a mechanism of producing light. So when we turn our screens darker, right, so if we put on the night shift or we put on dark mode, right, whatever you're viewing, whatever you are able to see, whatever that image is, it's still being created by blue light, even though it's orange. So maybe it's a little gentler on the eyeballs. But it's still LED light. It's still blue light. It's still the same wavelengths. So for me, it's a nod in the right direction by the tech companies to say, hey, we recognize that blue light isn't great, but we still want you on your screen. So we're going to do this like night mode that's going to make yeah. everyone feel better about their, <laughs> their consumption of screen time. But it doesn't block blue light by any means, because if you can still see an image, that image is being produced by blue light, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So from a technological standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. So now let's talk about blue light glasses. So there are blue light filtering glasses and blue light blocking glasses. Blue light filtering glasses are going to filter blue light. Those are known to be better for your eye health, for your retinal health, for your macular health, things like that. Like it diffuses the blue light. Blue light blocking glasses would probably be the best option if you have to. So blue light blocking glasses for those, I I would recommend, so I don't, I never want to give everyone the easy way out because that's the easy button. It is the easy button, right? You could do the blue light blocking glasses, but that comes with a whole treasure trove of other problems. First of all, is your autism spectrum child going to wear glasses? Are they going to tolerate blue light blocking glasses? Are they going to tolerate watching their favorite things in a different hue? Because it does change the color of the image, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an actual mechanism problem where like, are they going to wear the glasses? But then also, are they going to be able to terminate the screen time in enough time to get tired for sleep? Is that dopamine rush going to continue even in the absence of let's say blue light. So it's an okay alternative I would say for for those consumers who have extreme maladaptive behaviors when we terminate screen time. If you have a consumer who absolutely who we are on a journey with this client long term to decrease and uh, reduce the reinforcing value of of screen time for them, if we are dealing with a screen addiction or let's say a self-injurious consumer or someone who's going to hurt themselves or others, if we choose to take away that screen time, I would recommend blue light blocking glasses while we're working on that new skill, while we're lo- working on that regulation to protect whatever we can of sleep.
0: Okay, that makes sense, Yeah.
1: But we can't neglect all the other things that screen time give us as well, right? That dopamine rush, that endless scroll of YouTube where it's like suggesting things for our kids, where they can't terminate that pleasure, right? And so then that that makes bedtime problems problematic, terminating it so that we can do a bedtime routine, right? So that we can get to that place. We don't want to get the kids to a place where they're just using screens to fall asleep because then what's going to happen is they're going to wake multiple times throughout the night looking for that screen time again. Oh. oh. <laughs> so that's related to one of those other behaviors you were talking about, like waking up in the middle of the night. Yes. So now we can kind of, this is a natural segue into multiple night awakenings. So however the brain falls asleep under whatever conditions sleep is precipitated, that's how the brain is going to anticipate sleep all night long because we don't fall asleep at bedtime and wake up in the morning, right? This is me like drawing a rainbow arc for all my listeners, (laughs) for all the listeners. This is me drawing a rainbow, falling asleep at bedtime, go to waking up in the morning. That's not how sleep works. Sleep works like a wavelength, up, down, up, down, light, deep, light, deep, light, deep all night long. We cycle through sleeps. We connect our sleep cycles all night long. We fall asleep. We get into a deep sleep. Our cells regenerate. All the good stuff physically happens in our deep phase of sleep. And then we go into our light phase of sleep where we dream and we have our little light awakenings. We all wake up all night long, but we put ourselves back to sleep. But if the brain doesn't know how to put itself to sleep at initial sleep onset at bedtime, If something is helping the brain precipitate sleep, the brain is going to naturally need that thing at all of the other light awakenings in order to fall back asleep. So that can be an adult laying down with the child um, and then leaving. That can be screen time to fall asleep. That can be for some kids, a bottle of milk. You know, if they're sucking to sleep, if they're drinking their milk to sleep and then waking up in the middle of the night and the parents go like, oh my gosh, my kid is so hungry, they eat all night long. Well, it's really the suck to sleep that they're craving. It's not the actual nourishment. Although we have then taught them to eat on a 24-hour cycle, but maybe that's another podcast. (laughs) But really that suck to sleep, nourishment to sleep, however the brain precipitates sleep at sleep onset is how it's going to need to fall back asleep all night long. Okay. Got it. So it's, it's tricky for caregivers because we see that something helps sleep. We see that laying down helps them fall asleep. We see that the bottle helps them fall asleep. We see that, you know, screen time helps them fall asleep. And by the way, we do this to ourselves too. We hear it all the time. I can't fall asleep unless I'm listening to music. I can't fall asleep without my podcast. I can't fall asleep without the TV on. I can't fall asleep without yeah. the, the lights completely off. I need it to be like a tomb when I fall asleep. I can't, can't, can't. We hear all these can'ts. But really all it is is the brain's dependency on certain stimuli for precipitating sleep. Think about sleep as, as a life preserver. It's necessary for life, right? If we don't sleep, we die. That's it. Like we we cannot not sleep for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. We will deteriorate from the inside out. So sleep is necessary for life. The brain knows this. So however the brain learns to anticipate sleep and precipitate sleep, the brain is going to attach to that and be like, no, this is how sleep goes. And mm-hmm. so if we try to take the screen away or if mom tries to not lay down with kiddo one night or if we try to sleep with the lights off and so the lights on or we try all the you know bells and whistles and tricks to get the child to sleep, kiddo is going to be upset about it because they don't know how to anticipate sleep otherwise. Right. So fostering that independence with falling asleep is sometimes where where we as the, let's say, behavior intervention team can come in and be helpful, but we need to ask the right questions.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And what would you say are some daytime habits that could impact sleep? Naps. Okay, so naps during the day.
1: Yeah. So over the age of about, let's say, three and a half years, the body no longer needs to nap and can tolerate an ever-expanding amount of time awake. So around three and a half, we call it a waking window. The waking window is about 12 hours. So they'll wake up at 6 and go to bed by like 6, 6.30. And then they'll sleep about 11 and a half, 12 hours overnight, wash, rinse, repeat at, at 3, 4 years old. Then as they get older, you know, that waking window expands. We can tolerate 13 hours awake. We can tolerate 14 hours awake. So bedtimes get later and, you know, all that jazz. If we have a six-year-old, let's just say, who is, you know, napping at around three or four o'clock, there's no way that body is going to be able to sleep by 830. There's just no way. The brain hasn't been afforded enough wake time before it's able to accept sleep again. So napping during the day for our younger population can be really intrusive to the efficiency of falling asleep. And so then we get into this, oh, my child just won't fall asleep. And then we go, we lay down with them to help them fall asleep, or we give them a melatonin to help them fall asleep, when really the core problem was that the child was napping when they didn't really need to be. But then they have poor quality of sleep and then, you know, because someone's laying down with them and then they're up all night because someone was laying down with them. and then (laughs) So it it really is like this snowball effect of of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Well, that's not a snowball effect. This effect (laughs) of which came first, (laughs) that's not a snowball at all. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the multiple night wakings that's causing the, you know, da-da-da? So we really, as the intervention team and even as caregivers, we we kind of have to look back at the whole picture at all of sleep right naps aren't isolated from bedtimes or from overnight sleep it's all together in one 24 hour chunk right how we fall asleep is impacting whether or not we're going to stay asleep all night long an early morning wake up like if we're waking to an alarm that's going to impact our you know our learning cycle so All of these things kind of come into play. And in order to really dissect and evaluate and assess where the core problem is as the treatment team, let's say, we have to ask a lot of really important questions, which I go through in depth in all the CEUs, which is why I put them out there so that we can ask the right questions. So we're not just treating a behavior in isolation, right? So Mm -hmm. that we're really getting a bigger picture of how sleep works to ask the right questions, to be able to set families up with a really effective plan that's going to be sustainable and is going to have long-term impact. Isn't just putting the band-aid on the wrong cut.
0: Yeah. One follow-up question about the naps. What do you think about that theory of, you know, that perfect 14 to 20 minute nap that can kind of give you that, just that right amount of energy that you need to keep going?
1: So that that's that's a thing. That's science. It's definitely it's it's valid. But we have to ask ourselves. uh, First of all, your six year old who's napping during the day isn't going to nap for 19 minutes. Mm. Right. They're going to be napping an hour, hour and a half. It's going to be really hard to cut off, let's say, a 12 year old's nap at 19 minutes. For adults, you know, we have to ask, why do we need that nap? We can do a power, like, you know, it's the old days of the power nap, right? But you have to ask, is it impacting my overnight sleep? Some people can get away with it. Some people can. Some people love their 19-minute power nap in the middle of the day. They zip their eyes closed. My sister-in-law does this. She puts her eyes closed for like a good, like, less than 20 minutes. She's up. She's ready to go. And she sleeps great at night. So I give her no advice. She's like, oh, I know I shouldn't <laughs> nap. A- and I say, no, you should nap because it's helping you and you sleep very well at night. Mm-hmm. But here's the big but. If you're napping, let's say for 20 minutes, if you're able to get that 19-minute nap and you're not falling asleep until midnight, that nap's not working for you. It's not serving you. You're sleeping off a of sleep debt. Uh Uh-huh, right. Right? And so you have to decide, like, okay, if that's the lifestyle you want, then that's great. Then that is working for you. But when we're looking at kids, it's really hard to get that perfect nap. It's hard to get that 19-minute nap. They're more likely going to get that hour, hour and a half nap. And now that's going to steal from nighttime sleep. Could we encounter a magical child, who can, a 12-year-old, who can nap for an hour and a half and be asleep? By 11 o'clock, we might find the unicorn, but I'm going to say it's probably not, not the norm. And it's more likely to end up shooting you in the foot as the caregiver, let's say, if your teenager, let's say, is sleeping off a sleep debt. I mean, teenagers in general don't get enough sleep anyway because of how their melatonin produces, but they're on a totally different cycle. But you have to evaluate that power nap, right? You have to evaluate that nap. It's not just like, I nap, I feel better. It's I nap, I feel better. But now what does the rest of the 24 hours look like? Mm -hmm. You've mentioned sleep debt a couple of times
0: already. And Mm -hmm. with this concept is it possible to eventually catch up on enough sleep?
1: No. The answer is no. Okay. You you can't. You can start feeling better once you start getting consistently eight hours-ish or more a night for consecutive nights of sleep. So we see this with teenagers a lot who are continuously in sleep debt during the week, let's say, um, and then they sleep like 12 hours on the weekend. They're not really sleeping off. They are sleeping off their sleep debt because they are feeling better, but you're never going to get back the health benefits or the cognitive benefits of that lost sleep. We don't recover in that way, but we do feel better. So you can kind of feel better a little bit, but then if you go on and accrue more sleep debt, that's basically less than eight hours of sleep. Some people will say I can get by with seven hours. That's probably not true. And I'll tell you why in a second. But, you know, if we're continually getting less than eight hours of sleep, let's say, and then we say, well, I sleep in on the weekends. I sleep until 10. You're just feeling better temporarily. And then you're going back into this really unhealthy cycle. And you will start noticing cognitive... (laughs) De- decrepancy that's not a word mm. you, you will start seeing that your cognitive abilities don't just bounce back you're gonna start noticing that you know you're gonna as you age high blood pressure now we're with the cholesterol and now we're with now we're on you know diabetes pre watch out for diabetes now our diet is is difficult now we're gaining weight All of these things that are direct correlate, and now we're depressed. Now we're on antidepressants. Now we're feeling more anxious over time. So you will never actually sleep it off until you are now consistently, for multiple nights in a row, getting eight hours more or less of sleep per night. And then you will start sleeping better once you are sleeping better on a rhythm You can't just sleep out of sync and then hope to make it all up and then sleep out of sync again. And so what's interesting about what I was going to say, sorry, I know you were about to ask a question, but what I was about to say before I lose the thought about people who think that they can go on less sleep, the research shows that as with people who are drunk and misreport their ability to drive, right? The drunk person who's like, I'm fine to drive. People who are deprived of sleep, even one hour per night, but even more, they, they have done studies up to just four hours a night of sleep, they will report that they can get by on that much sleep, that they don't actually feel that exhausted, that they're just fine. When really the testing that's done after that, the cognitive tests that are done show a totally different story. So they've done short-term memory tests. They've done, I think it's like fine motor, gross motor. They've done a lot of testing on sleep-deprived people and seen how they test on these tests with a full night of sleep and with a sleep deficit. And they test completely differently on when they're in a sleep debt. They don't perform as well on these memory tests, on these um, like different kinds of acuity tests. They test poorly, but they'll say, no, I feel fine.
0: That's really fascinating. It's almost like they've con- convinced themselves or they're just blinded
1: to it. Yeah, they can't see the problem. I mean, it's exactly like it is with someone who picks up their keys to go drive after, you know, having a couple drinks at the bar. They I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. There's
0: an impairment. It's an of impairment.
1: judgment. Yeah, it's an impairment of judgment. We And so what they've compared side by side is the output on these assessments after sleep deprived and then self-rating skills about how they feel. And so the self-rating skills will kind of show like, yeah, I feel great. But the cognitive tests will show like complete decimation of their short-term memory skills of, you know, of, of learning consolidation, um, ability to keep track of facts basically. So Yeah. So people who are like, yeah, no, I can get by on six hours of sleep. I'm just fine. I go, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. I don't think so.
0: Okay, Emily. So your, your program, Ready, Set, Sleep, you provide training to parents, obviously, and professionals, practitioners to use this with their own clients. How do you ensure that your training is sustainable? How do you know that what you're implementing will stick?
1: So we have to look at sustainability of the plans that we're implementing. So I go into pretty great depth of evaluating what we are teaching the families to do to make sure that it's sustainable and make sure that they're set up for all of the changes down the line. So what I like to educate families on isn't just how to get rid of the problem now, but also how to forecast ahead and say, okay, sleep changes over the course of a lifetime. I might have a three-year-old with a sleep problem now, but I could potentially end up with a six-year-old who can't fall asleep, or a 12-year-old who can't fall asleep, or a young adult who can't fall asleep. Am I equipped with the information to flex with those changes and actually continue to modify my expectations over time so that I can better address sleep over time, I really like to reiterate over and over again how much sleep changes over the course of a lifetime. We can't just walk in there and fix the problem because that's not setting families up for sustainability. If we walk in there and say, okay, Junior has trouble falling asleep, Fine. Well, he's coming out of bed. It looks like, okay, I'm going to sit there at nine o'clock at night and take my data, right? I'm going to take my data. Well, every time he comes out of bed, you tell him to go back to bed. That's social reinforcement. Okay. So now we're going to say, okay, it's you know, positive reinforcement. Now we're going to get rid of that. And so I'm going to program for uh, basically teaching him how to stay in bed. But what if the problem was that we had the wrong bedtime? hmm. Right. That's what my ethics course is for. (laughs) Right. That's what my ethics course is for, because so often we look at a behavior and we analyze the behavior and we are 100 percent right on. It is attention seeking, let's say, or it is avoidant. Maybe we, we could watch video. We could be in the family's home and we could do this over and over and over again. We could watch the same thing happen over the course of a month. And in our ABA brains, we will still identify all of the antecedents and all of the consequences that are maintaining our assessment of attention uh, maintained or escape maintained, let's just say, for example. But if we are trying to get a 12-year-old to sleep at 9 o'clock, that's the problem. Hmm. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I think a lot of times in ABA, when people are doing their ABC data and they're writing their antecedents and consequences, they fail to pay attention to these setting events and contextual cues of what's really happening in that situation.
1: Right. And do we have the information? I mean, I know as a BCBA, none of my coursework in- included sleep norms. Right. No, it's kind of out of our scope. Uh, totally out of our scope. Right but because it isn't really it doesn't have to be outside of our scope it doesn't have to be because it's it's information that's readily available to us we can google sleep norms and find out you know about melatonin and teenagers and how we're not going to get our teenager to sleep much before 11 and so how are we going to modify a plan right how are we going to work lean into that right work around it these are things that are available, but we just have to make sure we're asking the questions when we are implementing something like a sleep program or a feeding program, too. Feeding also falls into that, that a similar category of, you know, kind of outside of our scope, but we're always working <laughs> feeding programs, right? But are we working feeding programs with all the information about gustatory function and things like that, right? Like, we're not mm-hmm. equipped for that, right? We have to refer them to an OT or a feeding specialist. You know, for sleep, it's, it's a little more benign because the family is probably used to doing the things they're doing and they're making it work, but they're just not making it work with as much efficiency and, and with as much wellness in mind, right? And back to the original question of, are we implementing a program with all the setting events in mind? Those setting events we can learn about. Those are learnable. They're really Mm -hmm. learnable. I mean, I I didn't just, you know, wake up knowing all of this about sleep. I did a lot of reading and I had to sort through the garbage, right? I had to sort through, is this a philosophy or is this science? Yeah. (laughs) Right? You have to look at, you know, where you're getting the information from, making sure that this research has been duplicated and that it's not just like kind of a one-off, oh, I read an article once that said... You know, melatonin right. doesn't produce until 11 at 16-year-olds old. I saw that and I was like, no, 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 hold on a second, right? Like teenagers, melatonin, how's that possible? Sunlight, blah, blah, blah. But no, over and over and over again, no. Uh, you know, once you are kind of pubescent, your melatonin may not produce until 11 o'clock. That prepubescence is where it gets a little wonky. And how do you assess? How do you know whether your child is pubescent enough to have their melatonin be (laughs) shifted all the way to 11 o'clock. Okay, now these are different questions. When do they naturally fall asleep? What would happen if you didn't intervene? What would happen if they didn't have screen time? What would happen? You know, we have to really, you know, parse it apart. We have to pull it apart like um, a different kind of an FAA or an FBA. It's a whole different kind of uh, analysis in itself. But, you know, through the CEUs and through ongoing education and through exposure and through just hearing this stuff over and over again, it kind of starts making sense, and you can start putting together more um, ethical plans that are going yes. to be sustainable over time for our families and educate them in those in those ways.
0: Yeah, it's just a good reminder for clinicians out there to really do their due diligence when designing programs. Mm. Like you said, there's a wealth of information out there, and so it's up to us to really put in that effort and make sure that we're providing like real best practice.
1: Right. And, you know, especially with with numbers, I mean, the numbers are now soaring up towards 80% of families of children with autism reporting some kind of a sleep problem. Now, I attribute it not to a a greater rate of diagnosis, not to just, you know, okay, your child has autism, they're going to be bad sleepers. And I say that with big air quotes, because that's just not true. But I attribute it to more of, you know, the screen time, the jumping, the getting the wiggles out, just the lack of, um, you know, basic knowledge that parents, I mean, look, it's not just the autism population that's suffering in this way. I mean... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we know for ourselves, we know because in the neurotypical population, we have tons of sleep problems. There's no lack of sleep problems in children out and about in the world. It's just a a matter of raising awareness, you know, on the importance of sleep, prioritizing sleep, you know, for our own health and wellness, for the health and wellness and learning of our children and just really putting it on the forefront.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, Emily, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who are feeling maybe overwhelmed or kind of helpless with their child's sleep problems? Like, where do they start? Like, what's a good step one?
1: Uh, A good step one is going to be the bedtime routine and just making sure your child's on the right schedule and looking at how they fall asleep, and being aware, just I think just raising awareness in yourself of how what you are doing to help your child fall asleep is probably most likely what's causing their sleep disruptions overnight. If we can kind of wrap our heads around that, because You know, even though they are all kinds of meshed together, right, that, you know, difficulty falling asleep and then the caregiver helps with sleep and then the child's waking up all night long, I always start first and foremost with what's happening at bedtime. So the bedtime routine and how the child falls asleep. Are they falling asleep in your bed and then you're transferring them to their bed? That's going to be a recipe for night awakenings. Are they falling asleep on the couch and then you're transferring them? Are you laying down with them? Are they falling asleep in the car and then you're transferring them? Are they falling asleep under the conditions that are going to be present all night long? If the answer is no, then you just have to kind of sit back and and think a little bit about what it's going to mean to make those changes. Because what prevents families from making these changes are the child's behaviors. And so often we are so punished by our own children's behaviors that we negatively reinforce ourselves. You know, we want to avoid the crying. We want to avoid the tantrums. We want to avoid the upset because we know how important sleep is, right? And we don't want to escalate right before bedtime. So we avoid making these changes to avoid the behavioral outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it it is a big monster. It's a big onion to peel when we're looking at now making changes to how the child falls asleep because now we're looking at managing bedtime behaviors, which is why I love um, Gregory Hanley actually introduced me. This was, I think, 2014 to quiet-based visiting to alternatives that are more gentle and more ABA-based that are a different strategy than just extinction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or any kind of a DR per- procedure, really. But now we're shaping desired behaviors with this quiet-based visiting, which I I go through in the CEUs, which is just basically teaching quietude rather than managing behaviors. Interesting. It's the inverse. It's
0: mm-hmm. the
1: inverse of extinction. So that's what I promote mostly. That's what I teach mostly. I try to do that when I can. You know, it's just a really great alternative to managing those big behaviors, especially look, we have self injury to think about. We have, you know, aggression to think about. We have sleep loss in the short term to gain more sleep on the other side. So, you know, there's an emotional component in there for the families too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And all of this is
0: really can be applicable to adults, like you were saying before. Mm-hmm. So, if, you know, we have any autistic adults out there who are listening and they see some red flags that they're maybe not getting a good night's sleep or enough rest, then they can start to examine some of these things around bedtime as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sleep is for everyone, you know, and I think sometimes we get so lost in our comfort zone of whatever we're doing to kind of help us fall asleep at night, whether that's screen time or whether that's, you know, music or whatever. If we're finding ourselves with poor quality of sleep or having to drag ourselves out of bed in the morning, those are red flags. Those are big red Mm -hmm. flags, you know, that, you know, are fixable. It's all fixable. That's the good thing.
0: I feel like you're you're talking directly to me, Emily. <laughs> have you been watching me this week? Or? You're not the first person to ask
1: that they're like, Emily, have you been in my bedroom? Lately? <laughs> it's universal. So many people are having trouble with sleep. yeah, and I just I want everyone to sleep. I think we'll be a happier happier, more tolerant, more patient world if we were all better rested. I really do believe that in my heart.
0: mm-hmm. Can you say your website and your social media so people can come look for you? Yep. Yeah. It's
1: just readysetsleep.com, uh as you would spell readysetsleep, uh readysetsleep.com and then on Instagram I'm readysetsleep with a little underscore at the end. Okay, got it. We'll put links to those in our show notes. Yeah, and I put I post a lot of funny stuff about sleep too to make it just just normalize it because I just what I want people to know is that they're not alone. If you're a a parent or a caregiver struggling with your child's sleep, you're not alone. If you're an adult struggling with your own sleep, you're not alone. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not a a life sentence. It can be fixed. It it will take a little bit of, of finagling. It will take some discomfort at first. But it's so worth it to go through that discomfort of like, you know, switching up how we fall asleep and some of our own sleep expectations for that long-term wellness benefit of just good night's sleep. Absolutely.
0: All right, Emily, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find some valuable nuggets in this episode.
1: I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. During the week leading up to this interview, I was struggling with my own sleep problems. I would fall asleep on the couch while watching TV, and then wake up in the middle of the night to brush my teeth, barely walk my dog, and stumble into bed. I was waking up exhausted, and the poor sleep was affecting my mood and cognitive functioning during the day. Speaking with Emily motivated me to change my sleep habits. I started to cut off screen time one hour before going to bed. I put a book of short stories on my nightstand as a prompt to read instead of scrolling on my phone. And I also stopped setting an alarm clock, unless, of course, I absolutely need to. I immediately noticed a difference in my quality of sleep and now wake up feeling refreshed and ready to start my day. What tips are you taking away from this episode? Let us know over in our online Global Autism community. Like Emily, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism Community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
1: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project.
0: You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the
1: world.